welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 9 beginning in verse 42 for the last time. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled with two hands than to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot caused you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye caused you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author John Piper once wrote, People don't enjoy salt. They enjoy what is salted. We are the salt of the earth. We do not exist for ourselves. So you know I love you, right? (laughs) This seems to be the catchphrase of the last several weeks because this text has been, that we've been looking at for the last four weeks now, is a difficult text. And there are some things in this text that we've had to wrestle with and some truths that we have had to deal with that have been hard to deal with. It is, it is for sure a, a difficult passage of Scripture, and as we talked about, it's difficult for a number of reasons. First of all, it's difficult because there's just a lot to this text. The words of Christ here really touch on a number of important subjects, like the doctrine of hell and, and, and the call to radical love and the command to walk in radical purity and even more. Right? And, and, and there's so much here that now we've spent four Weeks. This is the fourth part of this little mini-series instead of our continuing series in Mark, which is titled Following Jesus. The, the text is, is also difficult because this text deals with some very tough subjects, like the reality of hell and the horror of, of what hell is and the serious nature of our sin and, and the call to loving our brothers and sisters in Christ with a radical, selfless kind of kind of love and, and the call to radical purity. Right? These have been, been some of the most difficult subjects to, to think about and to talk about and to wrestle with. This passage has been difficult, and it's also been difficult because this text, as we talked about as well, has a number of textual variants in the text. Or in other words, there are just there's some disagreement between some Greek manuscripts and other Greek manuscripts. And what we've come to understand is that some of the later copies of the Greek um, has additions to the text, which is what we saw a few weeks ago. There are two additional verses inserted in later manuscripts that's reflected in certain translations like the King James and the New King James. Um, these, are, these are repeated phrases that just simply don't exist in the original Greek text. And, and today we're going to actually see another insertion into the text. Now, understand these insertions, they don't change the meaning of the text. And, and, and to be sure, there probably were marginal notes that were later then copied into the text. But the thing is, is their existence bears witness to the fact that this is a difficult text to interpret, which is the fourth reason why this is difficult. Right? This is a difficult text to, to interpret. I mean, if you think about it, 
It's like Jesus is talking about um, difficult things such as, you know, um, like millstones being hung around your neck and thrown into the ocean. They're very strange word pictures, right? He talks about hell and plucking out your eyeball and cutting you off your limbs. He talks about things like being salted with fire. There's some difficult imagery here that requires very careful study to keep this text in its proper context. This text right here requires work to understand it. It requires that we, that we spend the time, and that's what we've done. We spent four weeks slowly kind of unpacking and dealing with the difficult issues. And what we've come to understand, though, in the course of our time together, that in context, this entire passage of Scripture is about radical discipleship. That's, that's what, what it's about. This text is a summary of the radical life that those who follow Christ are called to live. Following Christ is about living a life of self-denial and sacrifice. Jesus said very plainly, what? If you're going to come after me, then you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and, and follow me. He also made a point to help us to see that it's about being selfless. Those will be the greatest in the kingdom or to be the least. It's about humility and service. It's about valuing and loving and serving even the least important person in the kingdom. Following Christ is about living in the light of the radical rescue that Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh, came into the world to save us from hell and the wrath of God. That truth should change us. It's also about walking in the radical love for God and a love for the things that God loves. And what does God love? His children all of them. It's also about pursuing radical purity, understanding that our sin has catastrophic consequences, not just for us, but for everyone around us. And God takes it seriously and expects that we would do the same thing. And as we talked about last week, all of this, this radical discipleship, when you look at it from the outside, it seems impossible. Or at least for those people who, who live by their own power. But understand what we've come to realize. That this is not impossible for those who belong to Christ. Because those who belong to Christ have been radically transformed in their heart and in their nature. They're a new creation. And they've been radically rescued from hell. And, and they have the Holy Spirit now dwelling in them. Slowly transforming them into the image of Christ. Empowering them to live out this radical discipleship. That's what we've seen so far in this text. And, and that is where all of Mark has been pointing to to this, this point. It's all led to this point. To this understanding that following Jesus is grace-driven radical dis discipleship. It's grace-driven radical discipleship. It's the grace of God that brought you into a relationship. It's the grace of God that enables you to live this way. It's about living the radically different life than the rest of the world by the grace of God working in your life because our hearts have been radically transformed. This text in Mark has been a summary of just how radical radical discipleship is. Now, <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I've been ready for a little bit to move on from this text. Because I've spent months reading this text. I've spent months thinking about this text. And, and if, I'm, if I'm being really transparent, this text has kind of beat me up a little bit. Maybe even a little more than a little bit. Right? This text has, has brought conviction into my life. 
Hopefully it has the same for you. Right? And so I have been ready, I've been ready to change the subject. I've been ready to move on to Mark chapter 10, where Jesus deals with a subject that maybe isn't quite so troubling, like marriage and divorce, right? I mean, actually, it's a difficult subject by itself. We'll probably spend two or three weeks talking about that particular subject, but I have been ready to move on from this particular subject. But the thing is, is we can't yet. And the reason why is because there's one thing left in the text that we just have not dealt with. And what we have not dealt with is verses 49 and 50, where Jesus talks about salt. And the temptation has been to simply just skip over this text because, because quite frankly, 49 and 50, verses 49 and 50, are the most difficult parts of this entire passage of Scripture. These two verses are the most difficult not, not just in this section, but really in the entire book of Mark. These two verses are hard to interpret and understand because, because first of all, think about it. They, they seem really out of place. I mean, Jesus talks about how important other believers are to him. right? And he talks about our need to not cause them to stumble. And how he talks about the reality of hell. And he talks about how serious our sin is. And how we're called to live in radical love and radical purity. And then he's like, oh, by the way, let's talk about salt and how salty salt is. Right? I'm like, how does this fit? I mean, I've read this text over a hundred times and I'm like, I still get lost. I get to this point and I'm going, how does this connect? My 21st century brain wants to see a division here. It doesn't seem to connect. It's a difficult because it's, it's, hard, it's a hard text to interpret. In fact, this text is so hard to interpret that I read in one of the commentaries, that, and I've read several on this text, but one of the commentaries that I read noted that, that they have seen over 49 different interpretations of this text throughout other commentaries, that other theologians and scholars have wrestled to interpret this text, 49 different interpretations of this text. Right? This is really, sincerely, one of the most difficult passages of scripture to deal with, right? And it would just be easy, it would have been really easy for me to just read a commentary, pluck some things out, cover it real fast, and then move on. But, but the Lord wouldn't let me do that, okay? This text is, is one that we need to tackle. It, it's one that we need to deal with. And the reason, first of all, is, is all scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. All scripture is the word of God. That means every verse, every word is important and valuable and useful to help us grow. Which means this text, as difficult as it is, is valuable and useful to us. And we would do well to do what we could to understand it. We need to tackle this text because it's the word of God. And secondly... We need to tackle this text because once you actually understand what Jesus is saying here, you will see that this is the overarching point that Jesus has been driving at since verse 33 when the disciples begin to to argue about who is the greatest. This right here is the conclusion of that ongoing conversation. Our understanding of this entire passage from verse 33 to verse 50 is not complete until we actually read and understand what Jesus is saying here. In these last two verses. And so we absolutely need to do our best to dig in and wrap our heads around what Jesus is saying. And so let's do that. Now, let me say ahead of time. In the process, 
if I lose you in the weeds somewhere, just hang with me. It'll begin to make sense at some point. I promise. Okay? So turn with me to Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 49. And Jesus says, For everyone would be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, the first thing that we need to notice in this text is the word for. It's the very first word at the beginning of verse 49. It's a connecting word. When you see the word for or the word therefore, you need to always ask the question is, what is that word for? Therefore. Because it's therefore a reason. There's, there's a reason it's in the text. right? And it's a word that connects. It's a connecting word that, that, that Jesus uses as basically telling you what Jesus is about to say is connected to what he has already said. This word for, which you can substitute for the word because, is, is there to tell us that this is a continuation of, of the same thought, which means that verses 49 and 50 cannot be separated from the rest of the text, as our temptation is. We can't take 49 and 50 and say, this is something that Jesus is talking by itself, unrelated to everything else he's said, right? And we can't say that everything else he said is unrelated to verse 49 and 50. Those things are connected, right? And so this word for helps us to see that. So we must understand that 49 and 50 has to be connected to in context of what he's already said. The second thing to notice is in this text is how many times Jesus uses the word salt here. The word salt is used in some form or another six times in the last in these two verses. You have Jesus saying that um, everybody's gonna be salted with fire. Salt is good. If salt has lost its saltiness. He says to make it salty again and have salt within yourselves. Six times Jesus says that word in two verses. Now, if you're someone who wants to learn how to study the Bible, and I hope that's everybody in this room. If you're somebody who wants to learn how to study the Bible and really know what the text is actually saying and what it means, one of the foundational things to pay attention to when you study the Bible is repetition. Anytime you see a repeated word or a repeated phrase or a repeated idea in the text, you really want to slow down and pay attention to what's being said because this gives you a clue to what the text is about. Anytime you see repetition in words or phrases or ideas, you should pay close attention, especially when you see words repeated six times, just like what we see here. And so what we can see very clearly is the meaning of these two verses is heavily connected to the word salt, which means everything else that he's been talking about is also heavily connected to the word salt and what Jesus means when he says the word salt. You see, if we're going to understand this text, we need to understand what Jesus himself means when he uses this word. Because obviously, Jesus is not literally saying that you're going to have flaming salt hurled on you. That's Praise the Lord, that's not what he's talking about, right? And when he says you need to have salt within yourself, he's not saying you need to increase your salt intake, all right? Because obviously some of us need to actually cut back on a little bit of that, right? Jesus is obviously using salt as a metaphor for a truth, which means that we have to be careful to try to understand what Jesus means when he uses that word salt, 
We need to understand this metaphor in his historical and cultural context, which for us can be tough. Why? Because we're all, we all are familiar with salt. We know what it is. right? We have our own context to understand it. It's, salt is cheap and, and plentiful, and it's, it's everywhere right, in our world. I mean, you probably have salt at home, probably several different salt shakers. Some of you have like regular salt, and some of you have sea salt, and some of you have seasoned salt. Right? And, you go, and, and, and most of us are probably going to go to lunch somewhere, and I promise you on every table there's going to be salt. It's, every, it's everywhere. And we know, you know what, it, what it tastes like. We know what it looks like. We know how to use it. We even know weird things like if you pour salt on a, on a snail, that, that booger's going to begin to melt. Right, and uh, and if you put salt on icy surfaces like roads and stuff, it'll help you know give give traction as it melts the ice. And we know that French fries just do not taste good unless you put salt on them, right? And seasoned salt is better than regular salt on French fries. I don't care what you say, right? <laughs> Can you tell I'm hungry? Okay. <laughs> All right. You see, we have we have our own historical and cultural context when we think about the word salt. But what we have to do is we have to take all of that, we have to set that aside if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying here. Because what Jesus is saying here is rooted in a first century Jewish culture and historical setting. Right? We're going to have to understand those things and look at those things closely if we're going to begin to grasp what Jesus is saying about salt and how it relates to this radical discipleship. Because salt does relate to radical discipleship, whether we can see it now or not. So again, let's look at verse 49. He says, For everyone will be salted with fire. This is a very odd expression. right? And it's a difficult one to understand where Jesus is coming from. It seems like such a weird thing to say. right? Because it is. It's a really weird thing to say. Unless you know something about the Levitical law. Because there is another place in the Bible that salt and fire are used together, which is the book of Leviticus. right? Which, by the way, that fact right there is the source of the variant in this text. You see, there's a variant reading in the Greek manuscripts. If you read the ESV or the New American Standard Bible, you'll see it one way, and then the King James Version, or the New King James Version, will, will, will say it actually a little bit different. There's going to be a, a substantial difference between the two. And the source of that difference is a scribe understood what Jesus was referring to when he said this, and as he copied his text, he actually probably wrote in the marginal note a little note about this. Kind of like we do. We'll write in the margins of our Bible. And he probably made this note in the margin to help other readers understand the context of this verse. Because it's a difficult passage of Scripture if you don't understand the context. Even back then. And like other marginal notes over time, you know, other scribes probably copied this marginal note and inserted it into the text. And it became the text itself for, for some uh, manuscripts. Which probably, which produces a variant uh, reading in the text, various readings that end up being translated differently into different translations. For example, the King James Version uh, of, of verse 49 reads like this For everyone shall be salted with fire, which is exactly 
how the ESV reads. But then there's the additional part that says, for every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. You see, what, what, what we have here is the original text, just like the ESV, along with an editorial note that ended up becoming rolled into the text. Because that last part is not found in the earliest and best attested to manuscripts. It's not in the original. Mark did not write that down that way. It is an editorial note, again, that probably began in the margins by a scribe to point people to the context so they would understand where Jesus was coming from. In fact, the words that are written down here actually aren't simply a comment of the text. If you, if you look at this, it's a cross-reference to Leviticus chapter 2. In fact, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 13. And you're going to see exactly where this scribe was coming from. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13 says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. Your grain offering which you burnt with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. This editorial note that became part of the, the later text is almost a word-for-word quotation from Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. Can you, can you see that? And the person who copied this originally probably wrote this note to help others understand the context of what Jesus is saying. Because if you don't understand Leviticus chapter 2, you're going to miss what Jesus is saying here. Right? It's that important. Because Jesus, what he's referring to here, in Mark chapter 9, as the copyist of the text understood, what Jesus is referring to is a sacrifice. That's what he's referring to. Jesus is talking about an offering specifically a grain offering. See, when Jesus says everyone will be salted with fire, he's referring to this particular sacrifice. Now, again, bear with me, because if I lose you here, I promise it's going to make sense. What we need to understand about the Levitical law is according to, to this law, there were five prescribed offerings in the Old Testament. You have five offerings that the law required of people. Four of them were animal sacrifices, which were the burnt offering, peace offering, sin offering, and guilt offering. These were, these were offerings made with animals that were sacrificed. And then you have the fifth offering, which is a grain offering. Right? Those are the kind of offerings that are commanded by the law. Now, the four animal sacrifices, when you look at that, what do they point towards? When you, when you see this in the law, they point towards our need for atonement for our sin. Right? The shedding of the blood of animals points towards our need to have our sin atoned for. We need to make a sacrifice. We need to make peace with God. We need to have our sin covered up. We need to have our guilt removed. These offerings all point towards our need for atonement and they point towards the perfect sacrifice of Christ that, that gives us that atonement. That's the point of the animal sacrifices. But the grain offering, that is different. right? It's an offering not of pointing towards our sin. It's an offering of consecration. It's an offering of dedication. It's an offering of, Lord, here is my life and I dedicate it to you. 
In fact, R.C. Sproul uh, puts it this way. He says, according to the instructions in Leviticus 2, either raw grain or grain that has been made into cakes could be given to God. Offering such things symbolized the need to dedicate every aspect of their daily lives to the Creator, including the labor by which they coaxed the grain from the ground. You see, this offering symbolized complete devotion to God in every part of your life. It symbolized devotion to God in every part of your life. This grain offering was an offering of thanksgiving and a commitment to God. That's what it symbolized. A life that is sacrificed and set aside for God. And it was an offering, as you see here in the text, that required salt to be added to it. Notice Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13 says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. Which should cause us to ask the question, why? Why does the grain offering, which represents full commitment to God, require salt? Well, the verse continues and says, You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. You see, what salt symbolized in this offering was faithfulness to the covenant. Faithfulness to God and God's faithfulness to men. Because salt is stable. Salt doesn't change. Right? Salt doesn't break down. It's dependable. It's, it's, it's an image of enduring faithfulness. And it's also a cleaning agent, and it's a purifying agent, and it also preserves things. And salt actually is essential to life itself. And, and, and the Jews were really familiar with this. The, you know, they would say that, that the world could not survive without salt. So, so salt is this picture of, of faithfulness. And so this grain offering, what we see is, is both commitment, full life commitment, and faithfulness before God. And this is the picture that Jesus is pointing his audience toward. And that's why the scribes long ago made a note in the manuscript. They, they wanted them to see, the reader to understand this. And so what Jesus is pointing to is, is a sacrifice, a full life commitment to, to God in every part of your life. right? And being faithful to that commitment. Jesus is saying radical discipleship is about radical sacrifice. It's about a radical sacrifice. Every part of your life, every part of your life is to be lived and committed to God. That's why he says things like, if you're going to follow me, then you need to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. And expect us to do it. Why? Because we are to be committed in every part of our life completely to him. And when he says that, that the greatest is the servant of all and that we should be getting busy serving everyone else, that we should do that. And he expects us to do that. Why? Because we have committed our entire life to him. And when he says that we need to love and value and serve and care for the least in the kingdom, even those brothers and sisters that we don't like, he expects us to do so because we have committed our entire life completely to him. And when he says that we need to pursue radical love and radical purity, we need to do so. Why? Because we've made a radical sacrifice and committed ourselves completely to him in faithfulness. 
That's what it means to follow Christ. Church family, if, if there's anything that you hear from me today that you remember and take out of here, it's this. Jesus doesn't want part of your life. He wants all your life. Jesus does not want to be a part of your life. He wants to be all your life. All of it. All of it. Every part of it. Your life as a parent. Your life as as a student. Your life as an employee. Your life as a spouse. He wants your life... As a community member, he wants your life as a consumer of goods and services where you, wherever you buy and sell. He wants your life as a friend. He wants your life as a stranger to other strangers. He wants all your life, your social life, your financial life, your sex life, your work life, your, your, your recreational life, your family life. Jesus wants it all, all of it to be committed to him, all of it to be dedicated to him, all lived in light of who he is. The call to follow Christ is a call to radical discipleship, which is a call to radical sacrifice, which is a commitment to live your entire life committed and submitted to Christ in faithfulness. That's what he's pointing at here. Our life is to be a continual offering to God. Now, once you kind of move that piece out of the way and you establish that, then suddenly everything else that he says after that begins to make sense. For everyone will be salted with fire, which is the radical sacrifice that we're called to. Salt is good, right? The sacrifice of commitment to God and faithfulness is is a very good thing. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Or in other words, what happens... When this sacrifice of commitment and faithfulness begins to lose its character, what happens when our commitment isn't quite so committed anymore? What happens when our faithfulness isn't quite so faithful anymore? Now, please follow along here. right? Because the thing about salt, what we have to understand, is as we talked about, salt is very stable. right? It doesn't change on its own. It doesn't break down on its own, which means it will not lose its salty characteristic over time by itself. The only way for salt to lose its saltiness is for it to become impure and mixed with other things. For example, Jesus, in his time, there were different types of salt from different regions. All of them had their own level of impurities. But there was a particular salt that was mixed with gypsum from the Dead Sea, that looked just like salt, but it was completely worthless because it lost its salty characteristics because it was was polluted. This is the illustration that Jesus is using. He's talking about saltiness losing its salt, right? I mean, mean, salt losing its saltiness. And the way that that salt loses those characteristics is because it becomes, becomes impure, diluted and polluted and corrupt by other things. And that's the idea is sometimes we can allow our commitment to God and the different parts of our lives and our faithfulness to become polluted and diluted and impure. Our radical sacrifice towards God become, can become worthless and impure. 
How do you suppose that our commitment to Christ in every part of our lives becomes polluted and impure? Well, in this context here, we see the discussion points us right back to sin, right? I mean, Jesus just spent quite a bit of time identifying that sin in our lives can certainly bring impurity to our commitment and our faithfulness to Christ. All of us have experienced that closeness with God, close fellowship with God, and then for us to fall even momentarily into sin and lose that closeness. And we all know somebody who has a genuine relationship with Christ who has fallen headlong into deep sin, and we've seen the the results of that and how their faithfulness has fallen completely apart. Our sin certainly can bring impurity to to our faithfulness. But how about our pride? This whole section began with the apostles wanting to talk about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom and looking down on other people. We've seen that over and over again. Our pride and our lack of humility and our lack of grace can be a huge polluting influence in our commitment to follow Christ. Or how about the distractions of our lives that tend to take our focus away from Christ, like hobbies and technology and fear and greed and work, and, and, and even some of our relationships that get out of balance can, can pull us away from faithfulness to our commitment to Christ. Jesus is saying that following him is about a radical sacrifice, and every part of our lives is to be about him. And there are things like sin and pride and and distractions that get in the way of that. They can make our continual offering to God impure. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, hear these, these words with new ears now. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your whole self, your whole life, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is your grain offering. And in light of that, do not be conformed to the world and become polluted as an offering, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Keep your keep our sacrifice pure means we need to live every part of our life Committed to and submitted to Christ. And that means we are not to allow ourselves to be shaped by the world around us, but rather be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And our minds need to be renewed continually by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. We need to make central to how we think and how we live our lives The very word of God. That is how we're going to keep our sacrifice pure. That is how we're going to continually come back again and again and again and commit ourselves and our entire life to Christ by the word of God and the Holy Spirit renewing our minds. And this includes all of us, not just new Christians, but veteran Christians as well. We need to to shape every part of our life and our thinking by the word of God. In fact, this week I had someone call me wanting me, uh, wanting to know if I could help them with something. And, and this person proceeded to tell me that she and her spouse were at an impasse in a discussion that they were having. And, and she wanted to do something for someone, and her husband thought that it would be better and more prudent that they, that, that they didn't do that. And they both had very strong feelings about the subject, and they both loved each other, but they just couldn't find the, you know, find the room to agree 
And so she called me and asked me what I thought. And I told her, well, I'm not going to tell you what I think. Because what I think is irrelevant. I'm going to tell you what the Word of God says. And what the Word of God says is you need to submit to your husband in this issue. And her response was very clear. And she says, that's not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> but I reminded her that her husband loves her and has the best, her best interest at heart. And that she needs to submit to his leadership according to the Word of God. And she realized the word of God is clear and correct, and she made the decision to heed her husband's advice because she made a point to allow the word of God to be the center of her life. Even when her emotions were going, I want to rebel against that. She submitted herself to the word of God, walking in that radical sacrifice. And that's what it means to follow Christ. Now that we understand these pieces... That Jesus is calling us to radical sacrifice by committing our entire life to him. And that we need to keep our commitment pure by continually renewing our minds to the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit within us. I want you to see, notice what Jesus says last. Okay, And this is super important because this is the crescendo to the entire conversation that began in verse 33. He says, have salt in yourselves. And be at peace with one another. Again, another strange expression. But I think the the Christian Standard Bible renders this a bit more clearly. It says it this way. Have salt among yourselves. And be at peace with one another. So it's not about having salt within yourself internally, individually. It's about having salt amongst yourselves as a group of people. So let let me tell you what the idea here is. The idea is all of us need all of us need to be fully committed in every part of our life to Christ, and you need to live that way toward each other. That's the point. And in light of that radical sacrifice, you and I are all called to make. He says then, be at peace with one another. This brothers and sisters is the point of the entire conversation that began all the way back in verse 33. This is the point, right? And so let me just tell you what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, stop fighting. That's what he's saying. Right? Because it began with an argument, right? Stop arguing. Stop causing each other to sin. Stop looking down on one another. Stop thinking that you're better than each other. Stop refusing to serve each other. Stop causing each other to stumble. Stop causing each other from walking away from the faith. Stop causing each other to leave the fellowship because you can't get along. Stop talking about each other behind each other's backs. Stop snobbing each other. Stop putting yourself above all others. Put away your grievances and your petty irritations, and your feelings of superiority and self-importance. Instead, be humble. Be gracious. Be loving the way God is loving. Love and value and care for and serve each other, brothers and sisters, even the lowest of the low. Sacrifice and commit your entire life to Christ, including the part of your life where you have to deal with and treat other believers, even the ones you struggle with. 
Radical discipleship is about a radical sacrifice of all of your life and all of your emotions and all of your pride and all of your ego. It is about a radical purity as you seek to kill sin. It's about a radical love as you sell out to love what God loves. And God loves his children, every single one of them. It's about taking your old life and laying it on the altar and taking up this radically different life and living it out. It's a call to be at peace, not simply to be a church family. It's a call to be a radically different church family. A family full of people who love each other with a radical love, who help each other pursue radical purity, and who help each other to live out this radical sacrifice. That's what it means to follow Christ. That's discipleship. Is learning to put Christ in above all things, and then all of your brothers and sisters in Christ, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. All of them, all of them, all of them before yourself. You want to know what it means to follow Jesus? That's what it means to follow Jesus. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I praise you, Lord God. so many things, but I praise you especially that now I can move on. But Lord, I may be able to move on from this text and preach on something else, but I know that I cannot move on in my life and heart. I need to live this out. But I realize, Lord, as I look at your word and I understand who I am, and I understand who you are, and I realize that if this is how I'm supposed to live, then I need to depend on you because I can't do this by myself. It is not within my flesh to do this. It is only by your word and your Holy Spirit can I live according to what you're saying here, Lord. This radical call to discipleship. This radical call to put everyone else before me. This radical call to love the unlovable. This radical call, Lord God, to esteem and care for and not cause to stumble even the least among us, Lord God. All of us, Lord God, are called to that and that we are dependent upon you, Lord. And so let this, Lord God, be something that convicts us, but then turn our eyes heavenward, understanding, Lord, if we're going to live this out, you need to work it out in our hearts. And so we, as one church, cry out, Lord, change our hearts, Father. Change us by the power of your Holy Spirit, little by little, transforming us into the image of Christ so we can live this way. So we can be the salt that you're calling us to be that we can live the sacrifice you're calling us to live, that we can be have our, our sacrifice remain pure and unadulterated, Lord, not because of our efforts, but because of your faithfulness to work in us, Lord God. It is all 100% you. And I praise you for that too, Lord God, that the gospel is all about Jesus Christ and the work that he's done. It's all about you, what you've done for us, and even the transformation that's required of us, Lord God. We are wholly unable to do it on our own. And I rejoice in your ability to change us, Father. So, Lord, we ask, have your way in us. Let this word 
Convict our hearts, Lord God, and help us to live this way so we become the light that the world needs, Lord. Your word also says that we're salt and light. The world needs us because we have the message of hope that that it needs. There is no other hope besides Jesus Christ. Just as life is impossible without salt, eternal life is impossible without Christ. And we have that message. Let us proclaim it out loud. But Lord, let our lives, the way we love each other, be the light that draws other people to see who you are. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless and protect this congregation and that, Lord, you'd raise up a people who are sold out completely to live the way that you're calling them to live and to submit themselves, mind and soul and heart, to you. And that we, would, Lord God, would go out into this world and proclaim that truth unashamed. We thank you for that. In Christ, let me pray. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.